beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 27, we have another one of those unusual psalms in that the more joyful and triumphant part of the psalm is first and the more anxious and troubled part of the psalm is second. You have a strong affirmation of faith in verses 1 to 6, but you have an urgent cry for help in verses 7 to 14. You can see the contrast between these two sections of the psalm, especially if you look at verses 6 and 7, the last verse of the first part and the first verse of the second part. Therefore, he says, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And then in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. In one verse he is singing with joy, and in the very next verse he is crying urgently for help. Why is that? Well, I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, I think people of God, that life is like that, isn't it? We can fall from the heights of faith to the depths of despair in a moment, as Elijah did, for example, after the great triumph of God's name and glory on Mount Carmel. The very next day, Jezebel sent to him, threatening his life, and he was ready then to give everything up and, in fact, to die because he felt that there was no use in him continuing any longer. David does not fall as far as that in this psalm, The second part of the psalm is still an expression of his faith in God, but he certainly has come from great triumph to a more urgent crying in faith in the second part of the psalm. The second reason for that is, people of God, that there is a difference in circumstances between the first part of the psalm and the second part of the psalm. In the first part of the psalm, David stands in the presence of God and standing in the presence of God rejoices and expresses confidently his faith that God will keep him in all the circumstances of life. But in the second part of the psalm, David has gone out again to face his enemies. And though his faith does not falter, His faith nevertheless becomes more sober, more vigilant, more watchful. He is no longer able to triumph and exult as he did in the first part, but he still expresses his confidence in the Lord. Let's consider the psalm then under the theme, Faith Triumphant, Faith Expectant. First, Faith Triumphant, verses 1 to 6, and secondly, Faith Expectant verses 7 to 14. In those first six verses of the psalm, people of God, the first three of those verses are especially about the camp of the enemy. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. But verses 4 to 6 are about the house of the Lord. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The parallelisms of the first three verses are quadruple parallelisms. That is, instead of four lines in the parallelism, two lines in the parallelisms, that is, as usual, you have four lines in the parallelisms. Four lines in each of those verses. And we should notice, as we look at those parallelisms, that that quadruple parallelism is not quite what we would expect from the usual pattern of these parallelisms. Because it's not the first and second lines that are paired, but the first and third lines of each parallelism, and then the second and fourth. So he begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation, but then in verse 3, the Lord is the strength of my life. So also in verse 2, when the wicked came against me, then line 3, my enemies and my foes. And verse 3, though an army may encamp against me, and the third line, though war may rise against me. And you can see the same pattern in lines 2 and 4 in all three of these verses. So you have this carefully structured set of quadruple parallelisms. In addition to that, you can see in verse 1 that the first half of the verse is synonymous with the second half. That is, David says essentially the same thing in both halves of those verses, of that verse. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? The same is true in verse 3. Though an army may encamp against me, the war may rise against me. And in the second half, his expressions of confidence. But in verse 2, it's different. There, you do not have a synonymous parallelism between the first half and the second half, but you have a development. In the first half, we see his enemies coming against him to eat up his flesh. But in the second half, we see them stumbling and falling, failing altogether in their purpose against him. David has reason to fear. He has experienced that the wicked have come against him, and they have come against him rapaciously, cruelly, to eat up his flesh, as he says, like a lion seeking its prey. He anticipates further trouble from his enemies, as verse 3 makes clear. Though an army may encamp against me, though war may rise against me, he expects that there will be warfare in the future. And yet, people of God, David's faith in the face of these enemies is triumphant. It's not enough to say here in these first six verses, David has confidence that the Lord will take care of him, will protect him from these enemies. It goes far beyond that. David's faith is triumphant in these first six verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice there that he says the Lord is light, is salvation, and is strength. Not that the Lord will send light, will send salvation, or will send strength, but that the Lord himself will come on David's behalf and will be with him in the battle and will be for him in that battle. Everything that he needs, light in his darkness, rescue from his enemies, 
defense against all their attacks. It is because of what the Lord is to him that he can say so triumphantly, I will not fear. Three times at least, really, I think four times. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? My heart shall not fear. In this I will be confident. In verses 4 to 6, David turns his attention from the camp of the enemies to the house of the Lord. As you look through those three verses, you see that David gives several different names to that house of the Lord in those verses. He calls it the house of the Lord in verse 4, the third line. Also, his temple in verse 4, the last line. His pavilion, verse 5. His tabernacle, also in verse 5. And perhaps we may even include that word rock at the end of verse 5. Though it could also be taken as a change of metaphor. (coughs) The word pavilion is not a word that's frequently used in the Old Testament. Four times, I think. But in at least one of those times, it's very clear that that word refers to a lion's den, the place where the lion hides himself from all other creatures. David is looking at the house of the Lord in that way. Perhaps a better translation would be covered rather than pavilion. Notice, too, that David uses here in these three verses the names for the two dwelling places that God had for his, among his people during Old Testament times. He uses both the word tabernacle and temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then in verse 5, in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. Neither one of those places existed at the time that David wrote this psalm. The tabernacle was gone. The temple had not yet been built. And yet the reality to which those houses of God pointed did exist. Because God did not have a physical dwelling among his people during the reign of David does not mean that he was not there among them, that he did not dwell among them as he had promised. He was there for his people, dwelling among them and showing to them his covenant. David also mentions in this verse, these verses, the secret place of his tabernacle. And that's a reference to the most holy place, to that place which was the footstool of God, where the wings of the cherubim covered the Ark of the Covenant. David looks upon that tabernacle as a place of which he himself may make use, that first of all. In each one of the verses, he talks about what he is going to do in that tabernacle. In verse 4, he talks about beholding the beauty of the Lord and inquiring in his temple. In verse 5, he talks about hiding there. And in verse 6, about offering sacrifices of joy. Three uses he makes 
of the house of the Lord. It is first of all then a place to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of him. Those are, I think we may say, people of God, the two sides of our worship. One reason we come into the house of God is simply to sit and to look upon his beauty. He makes himself known to us there. He reveals himself in the fullness of his grace and righteousness and truth and faithfulness. He shows us his beauty. And it is our delight, people of God, when we come into the house simply to gaze upon that beauty of the Lord. The other half of our worship is inquiring. We come to behold his beauty and to inquire in his temple. That is, to seek from him his word regarding ourselves. That's really what that phrase means, to inquire. It's the, a word that can be used, for example, of inquiring of the prophet, or inquiring of the priest, or inquiring through the Urim and the Thummim. The idea is inquiring in order that we may know the will of the Lord regarding ourselves. That's the other side of our worship. We come to adore him, but we come also to hear him speak his word of revelation to us, to reveal to us what he has to say regarding ourselves and what we ought to do and how we ought to live, how we ought to respond to our enemies and how we ought to rejoice in his salvation. David comes thus into the temple of the Lord to behold his beauty and to inquire of him. For, he says, notice that word for in verse 5, for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. That is, as he comes into the house of God to offer his worship to the Lord, David finds there that that place is not only a place for beholding God's beauty and for hearing his word, but it is also a refuge from his enemies. In the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He will take me even into his most holy place and shelter me under his wings, the wings of the cherubim covering the ark. He will be to me a refuge to which my enemies cannot penetrate, for they have no right of entrance there at all. And finally, he will set me up upon a rock. That rock is a high rock. A rock that's so high, in fact, that when David has been set there, his enemies cannot reach him. He is completely beyond their reach at that point. Now, he says, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. You get a picture here of his enemies surrounding him on all sides, all clamoring for his life, all seeking his destruction. And David in the midst of those enemies on a high rock to which they cannot reach. God has set him high above them all. That's the second purpose of the tabernacle then. That it becomes for David as he goes there to seek the Lord. It becomes for him his place of refuge. The place where he is safe. 
He does not mean, of course, particularly that his physical life is safe. David is never particularly interested in safety for his physical life. He's spiritually safe there. Whatever his enemies may accomplish against him as far as this world is concerned, the Lord will keep his soul. And therefore he will offer sacrifices of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. This people of God, these first six verses of the psalm, are one of the most triumphant expressions of faith in all of the scriptures. There are many such expressions of confidence, many such expressions of faith that the people of God make in many different circumstances throughout the whole of the scriptures, but there are few that reach as high as this one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And he concludes, therefore, with songs of praise. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Now there's one thing that we haven't looked at yet in these verses, and that's the beginning of verse 4. One thing, he says, I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's a common sentiment in the Psalms. Think, for example, of Psalm 26. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Think of Psalm 42, when David was cut off from the house of God and said, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or Psalm 84. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Or Psalm 122 in a little different strain. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What does David mean here when he says, that it is his one desire that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Well, there are two things that he does not mean. He does not mean, first, that he wants to have a room for himself in the physical dwelling place of the Lord in the tabernacle or temple. It's not what he's seeking. He does not mean either, at least he does not mean in the first place, that he wants to be in heaven. That's part of this, ultimately. But he says here, notice, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That includes his life here. So what is it that he's asking for? What is it that he desires of the Lord? Let me see if I can illustrate it, people of God. If you go on vacation or if you go on a business trip and someone asks you, where do you live? You do not respond to them by saying, oh, I live in that comfort inn over there on Main Street. You say, I live in Norristown, Pennsylvania. 
or wherever your home may be. You're not there at the moment, but that's your dwelling place. That's your home. And you know that the person is asking you about your home, and you know when he asks about your home that he's asking you, where is it that you have the center of your life? Where are your roots? Where is that household to which you belong? That's what David's talking about here. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That is, that I may call that place my home. That I may be a member of that household. That I may know what it means to say when I am far away from that that place, that's where I live. That's where my heart is. That's where my family is. That's where my joys and blessings are. To be in the house of the Lord. One thing, he says, I have desired of the Lord. One thing above all other things. He asks in this psalm for help. He asks for many other things throughout many other psalms. But one thing above all others he desires to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And he desires that so that he may make of that house those three things that we talked about. A place of beholding the beauty of the Lord and inquiring. A place of safety from his enemies. And a place of offering to the Lord the sacrifices of joy and thanksgiving. That brings us then to the second part of the psalm, faith expectant, verses 7 to 14. We've already noticed the change that takes place between verses 6 and 7, the dramatic change in tone and the reasons for it. As we look at these verses of the psalm, let's see that there are in these verses two groups of petitions, verses 7 to 10 and 11 to 13, each of which concludes with an expression of confidence in the Lord. And then a final exhortation to himself to continue in faith. Wait in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. In that first group of petitions then, verses 7 to 10, David begins as he begins so often in other psalms and in other parts of psalms with a request to be heard. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. By this means, he calls the attention of the Lord to himself and expresses the urgency of his need for the Lord's help. He says, really, in effect here, do not shut your ears to me. Do not be so far away from me that you cannot hear. Listen, listen now to what I have to say, because my cry to you is very urgent. In the next verse, David does a very interesting thing, a thing that he does not do in any other psalm, I think, and that is that he traces his prayer for the Lord's help back to its origin. 
When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. What brought David into the house of the Lord? What made him bring his petitions to the Lord? It was not an impulse that arose in himself. It was the word of God to him. The Lord said to him, Seek my face. And spontaneously and instantaneously, his heart replied, Your face, Lord, I will seek. This was not simply, people of God, a matter of prompt obedience on the part of David, but it was that effective call of the Lord to his servant to come, which drew him. No man, Jesus said, comes to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. And David is saying here, you have drawn me. You said come. And I have come. My heart replied, Your face, Lord, I will seek. And then David does another very interesting thing in the very next verse, standing there before before the face of the Lord, having responded to the summons of the Lord to come. He says, Do not hide your face. The Lord says, Seek my face. David says, Your face I'll seek. Don't hide it. In spite of the fact that the Lord has summoned him, he comes trembling. He is a worm coming into the presence of the majestic God. He comes without worth, without merit, without self-reliance, without any right to come, except that the Lord has summoned him. The Lord has said, Come! He cannot help but come. But he comes trembling. He comes knowing himself to be a sinner. And so as he comes, he says, Do not hide your face. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. He looks back on what the Lord has done for him. And he says, Don't turn away from me. You have been my help in the past. You have summoned me into your presence. Be my help also now. And then finally, in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he comes to his main request, the heart of his need at this particular moment of his life. Do not leave me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. I need your presence. I need you to be here with me because of my enemies. Do not abandon me now at this moment. But this does not mean that David's faith has faltered. He ends this series of petitions with an expression of confidence. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Out of all those who take care of him, David picks out those who are least likely to abandon him, his father and his mother. It's highly improbable that they will do so. He says, 
even if they would, still the Lord will not. Shall a woman forsake her nursing child? So the Lord will not forsake those who seek him. They are engraved upon the palms of his hands. He does not forget. The second group of petitions is a little bit different. Here, people of God, we have finally in the psalm more detail about specifically why it is that David has such a great need. He waits until almost the very end of the psalm before he tells us what is the main problem he is bringing to the Lord. For false witnesses, he says, have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. False witnesses have risen against me. He's not talking about attacks on his physical life. He's not talking about dangers faced in battle. He's talking about wicked men who are bearing false witness about him, who are trying to destroy his standing in the nation of Israel. It may be that he has in mind here some of the adherents of the house of Saul, who slandered him to Saul in order to encourage Saul to continue his opposition to David and at last to kill him. It may be that he has in mind Absalom, whom we know did slander his father as he tried to steal the hearts of the people of Israel from him. But it doesn't really matter what he's talking about here. The problem is this false witness. These men are breathing out their cruelty. They exhale cruelty with their very breath. And they exhale that cruelty and violence with the intent of doing harm to David's reputation, destroying his standing. Why is that so important to him? We often dismiss such things as trivial and unimportant. Well, people of God, it is important. It's important, it ought to be important to us too, that we be known among men as faithful servants of the Lord. That's David's concern here, that he be known as one who is faithful to the Lord. And his enemies try to destroy that reputation. But his concern is also, of course, that along with that attack of his enemies always comes temptation. Always comes the devil's subtle attempts to lead aside from the way. To draw one from the firm path of righteousness into the slows of wickedness and despair and sin. And so David begins this series of petitions by saying, Teach me your way, O Lord. That is, in the darkness of this present time, show me that way of righteousness in which I must walk. Show me so that I may know what I ought to do at all times and in all circumstances. Do not let these temptations and these attacks of my enemies obscure my vision of what you would have me do. And then lead me in that path. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Set my feet on that path because that's where the ground is smooth. 
and level. That's where my feet can stand firmly. That's where I know I have no danger of slipping. It's only when I turn aside that I begin to slip and to fall. Lead me in a smooth path. That's his first petition here. And the second is, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. Don't let them have their way with me. Don't give me up into their hands. Again, in spite of the urgency of his cry, notice his faith. Verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When we take that term, land of the living people of God, we instinctively think of heaven. Calvin rightly points out that that's not the meaning of that term here in the scriptures. He points to Isaiah 38, verse 11, first. In Isaiah 38, we have the prayer of Hezekiah in his sickness, prayer for healing. He says there in that prayer, I said, I shall not see you, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Hezekiah is not despairing there of everlasting life. He is sorry because he will not see the Lord any longer in the land of the living, that is, in the land where men dwell. Same is true also in Jeremiah 11, verse 19. Jeremiah 11, verse 19. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. David is talking here then about this life when he says, I would have fainted or I would have faltered if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And after I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is that goodness of the Lord that sustains him here in this present life. He believes that he will see that goodness. That he will see that goodness here and now. In spite of what his enemies are doing to him. He believes and he says, If it had not been for that faith that the Lord would show me his goodness here, I would have fainted. I would have lost heart. There would have been nothing for me to stand on. David concludes the psalm then, people of God, with an exhortation to himself. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David is, in this psalm, the last part of this psalm, very troubled, very urgent, not triumphant as he was in the first part of the psalm, but still confident. And so we speak of faith expectant. Faith expecting 
the help of the Lord. Faith firmly convinced that that help will come. And we see David at the end of this psalm then encouraging himself to continue in that faith. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, people of God, is the business of faith. It's the business of faith. Faith does not say to the Lord, you must come now, at this moment. From my perception, I'm about to be destroyed. From my perception, death is about to overtake me. From my perception, the enemy is about to ruin me. And when the Lord does not answer, say, the Lord has no interest in me. Faith waits on him. His timing is not our timing. His answers do not always come immediately. Sometimes we wait and wait and wait. The temptation to despair is there. But the word of a faithful man of God to himself is, wait, wait, wait. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.